morning, guys. How about you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. That's where we're at this morning. Uh, if you guys are new here, if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep this. It's our gift to you. Uh, we've been in this series uh, going verse by verse through the entire Gospel of John, and we just happen to be in chapter 11. We've been actually in chapter 11 for the past few weeks, and we'll continue to be for the next at least two weeks or so, and then we'll be wrapping this up and then moving on into really just the Easter season, getting prepped for, I think, my, actually, definitely my favorite of all holidays, Christian holidays, uh, Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Um, that being said, before we even jump in and begin to read this particular chapter or this portion of chapter that we'll be looking at here, I want to take a brief moment and just pray specifically. Uh, it was brought to my attention just really recently, uh, today actually, uh, that Cal Poly is on the brink of a pretty significant strike. Um, what I'm told is actually the largest strike uh, for higher education in history, which is very significant to have something of that nature in our backyard uh, will impact many, many people within our community, many people even within our own church. Uh, these types of things have the potential of bringing good, I think, if they go to particular uh, places of you know, influence and help you know, shape uh, ideas, but they also have the potential of going really poorly and bringing more uh, unrest and disruption um, and disorientation in the community. So I want to specifically just pray for those that are part of this or that are impacted by this, that God would just bring peace, because that's kind of what Christians do. We pray for God's peace. We pray to ask God to, uh, to use people of peace within those contexts of disruption and chaos to bring peace. So let's pray specifically for that. Uh, Father, right now, again, we want to come to you. We ask you uh, on behalf of what's potentially coming, Lord, that you would just bring a deep amount of peace over this whole scenario. God, I pray that it would be uh, nonviolent. I pray that you would help those that know you, that are devoted to you, that are in the mix of this, that you would give them wisdom to know how to function, to operate, give them wisdom to know what choices to make and how to navigate this whole situation. But most of all, Lord, just, we do pray that you would bring a quick resolve that would bring lasting peace, or at least a temporary lasting peace in this life, in this context right now. So again, uh, we pray for all those that would be disrupted by this, that you would uh, be upon them, be within them, and help them to know how to navigate this whole situation with wisdom. Uh, and we pray and ask all these things even now in Jesus' name. And be with us, God, as we turn our hearts to your word, open our eyes, our minds, our thoughts, our imaginations to all that you have for us here this morning. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 11 uh, is really this one lengthy story on the life of Lazarus. Most of you guys are probably familiar with him. He's a guy that dies. He gets raised again from the dead. Um, some would call this a resurrection. I'd probably more theologically describe it as more of a resuscitation because he ends up dying again. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 12, we're actually going to see a plot against Lazarus where people are already wanting to put him to death. So it's kind of crazy. So yes, the Bible has major plot twists and turns. So with that, what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at this larger chapter and breaking it down into major four major movements within the story itself, or four major chapters, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so what we'll be looking at here today, verses 28 through 37, and we've been kind of giving a little bit of a title heading over each one of these like little segments, the first of which we looked at when God delays 
Jesus knows that Lazarus is dead. For whatever reason, it says that he stayed an extra few days behind. Um, Again, if you would like to listen to that, just go to our podcast and check that out. Last week, we looked at when God invites, and God invites his people that are affected by this horrible, challenging circumstance to trust him. Uh, Again, check that out on our podcast today. We'll be taking a look at specifically when God displays emotion. I'm going to start essentially with a question, and specifically to you personally. Uh, What do you do when you know that there's a circumstance or a situation that will no doubt be filled with incredible emotion? I mean, like, not happy emotion, like draining, like soul-draining sadness, grief, loss. And you had the power, meaning you had the ability to say no to that and to walk away from that and to not engage with that. I think probably the majority of us, we either range from, I would avoid that at all costs. We, we call that Thanksgiving, by the way, for some of us. Um, or we, if we are going to go, we're going to go in guarded. We go in guarded, meaning uh, we, we know what type of impact that's going to have upon our souls. Because anytime you go into an emotional, emotionally charged circumstance, you know the type of uh, um, expenditures that's going to have upon your soul, uh, the type of uh, deductions that's going to have upon you. You walk into that, you know immediately. I know for me, uh, as, as a person that I would probably tip myself more into the introvert realm, so hanging out with people I enjoy, though it does drain my battery pretty significantly and pretty quickly, and I need time to you know, restore that. So the thought of actually going into something that I know is going to be extremely painful, I probably, for the most part, according to my own natural instinct, would avoid that at all costs. The only times I would find myself going into circumstances like that is if it's with somebody that I know that's going, I know these people, I love these people, that we just, my wife and I just did that a couple weeks ago. We have a friend of ours that's been in the hospital and we were at a hospital visit ourselves for her checkup, but they were there suffering. We thought, we have to, we're down here, we're with within range of them. We know they're going through great suffering. We've got to go into that and do the best we can, just love them and pray for them and just be able to hear them for a little bit of window of time that we're able to. And because we know them. If it was somebody we didn't know at all, we, we might have a natural instinct to maybe not do that. But again, with God's spirit, the hope would be that we walk according to God's ways and does what God wants. But with that big question being asked, The question is, how does God respond to emotionally charged or painful or pain-driven or excruciatingly challenging circumstances? The answer to that is really the answer that we find in this story of uh, John chapter 11, that Jesus actually enters into these circumstances. It's phenomenal. And this is a really great story. I'm going to pick it up at verse 28. I'm just going to read the little segment here, and then we will get to work looking at it bit by bit. So verse 28 says this, when she had said this, let me actually go back to the verse just prior to that. I think it's up on the screen. Uh, Verse 27 kind of ends the section we looked at last week. I think it's pertinent because it's a reference to Martha. It says, when she said to him, that's Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We'll actually come back to this passage here in just a moment. Let's next verse in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she had heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, 
if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to her, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he had loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to start with a like, little statement, kind of a summary statement of all this, kind of where we're going. Um, it goes something like this. God cares about human suffering and ultimately has a plan to restore his creation from sin and death. So it's safe to say that all human suffering comes or from upstream is affected by sin and death. Sin and death cause us as human beings to suffer. It's kind of this vicious cycle. Jesus has a plan to not only deal with sin and death, to eradicate it, to remove it from this world, and, <clears throat> and thus, once it is finally and completely and thoroughly removed, <clears throat> and he fabricates and creates a whole new creation, then it would be safe to assume that peace would finally begin to invade and fill and flood this entire world. And as a result of that, joy would, would be a regular constant. Um, but until then, we find ourselves constantly dealing with the effects of sin and its counterpart, death. Um, but Jesus, also at the same time, is not cold and indifferent to the side effects of sin and death. He deeply cares about this, and this is what this story tells us. So my hope this morning is that as we kind of tune our hearts and minds and ears to hear what the Word of God has to say regarding this, that it would literally change your posture if you are cold and indifferent towards God, um, or if you are suspicious or skeptical or have kind of a, a strained relationship with God because it oftentimes turns back to trust. Can this God be trusted? Again, you will always have a strained relationship with someone that you cannot trust. We all know this, right? It's not, you know, we don't need to go into too much depth about this. And some of our relationships with God may be like that. But my hope this morning through the teaching, through the words of John, that we would find ourselves entering into a whole new relationship with this God that actually can be trusted, and he's not cold and indifferent. In fact, quite the opposite. He's deeply connected to and impassioned by and affected by, emotionally, by the pain that you and I as humans go through. That's kind of the big unpacking thesis that I really want to unpack. So with that being said, I really want to look at two specific things this morning, and that will be the summary of it. Number one, I want to take a look at some observations and opinions of Jesus. So we'll kind of reflect upon the story here. One thing as I was initially reading this story that really captured my attention was the amount. I mean, it's kind of like a gold mine. It's like we hit the jackpot of uh, titles and ideas that express who Jesus is. And I just want to go through each one of these, because I think these alone will unpack for us a massive amount of theology, but not just theology that's cold and indifferent to your soul, but rather theology that's warm and life-giving, if we understand these things, I think, in the proper context. But these are, these are phrases and ideas that people had about Jesus. So number one, we see the word that gets used in verse 8, uh, where the writer John tells us that Jesus is referred to as rabbi, a rebbe, rev, rev. 
is the ancient Hebrew root word of this. And it just simply means a religious teacher or instructor. So first and foremost, we identify the fact that Jesus is seen by people around him, many people, not all people, of course, as, as being essentially uh, the equivalent of a, of a great religious teacher. In other words, he's got important ideas or topics or concepts or data to be able to convey. And what he wants to, John no doubt wants us to understand with regard to Jesus in this context is that he is a teacher that is going to be unpacking religious truths from the Torah. So that's number one thing. The second thing, we also see that he's also referred to in verse 28 as a teacher. This particular Greek word that's used here can just be deemed like an instructor or a guide, someone that's going to give a master class, right? Um, a, a professional um, in a particular field of special interest. That This Jesus is viewed as that. So I'm just, first and foremost, trying to tell you, how did other people see Jesus in his context? Why is it important? Well, number one, it just kind of tells us within this historical document, the historical uh, viewpoint of how people saw Jesus. That's important. That also helps us to gather understanding as to how we can maybe even begin to see Jesus, different frameworks that we can see Jesus in. Thirdly, we see that he's also described probably most notably in this entire story as Lord. Uh, we see that in verse 3, 21, 27, verse 32. The particular Greek word that's used there is kurios, um, and it's probably the most uh, repeated word that's used of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, interestingly enough, the word kurios is also used. Um, so in the Old Testament that was written, does anybody know what language that was for the most part written in? Hebrew, right. For the most part written in Hebrew. So when they translated this old document from Hebrew into the more modern language of that time, which was Greek, uh, they translated it into what was called the Septuagint. And so they had to use Greek words to basically translate old uh, Hebrew words. Um, one of the most notable words that was used to describe God, Yahweh God, from the Old Testament in the Septuagint was this particular word, kurias, that God himself is described as master or Lord. Um, this is also the word that's most notably used to describe Jesus, Lord or master. This word can literally just have a generic meaning, uh, referencing someone who is just like a master or a Lord, like, I don't know, someone that has power, they have authority, they're described as Lord or master of a household or a patriarch or someone like that. Someone has, has some degree of notability, um, but this does not necessarily mean that everyone, by simply using this word to describe Jesus, assumed immediately that he was also God incarnate, though there were many that, of course, did. But this is an important term because the word Lord signifies that you, Jesus, as they're describing him, you are the master. Uh, another way of thinking about this is a master would be the one that has been given the source of all authority. This is really important because I want you to think about this. Who is the source of your authority in this life? Who do you turn to? What sources do you turn to? Where do you go? And again, I guess the answer to that comes where, uh, in the context of what are you looking for? I mean, if you're looking for a recipe, you're probably not going to go to your prayer closet and be like, Lord, how should I like take this? sourdough mix, and what should I do? All right, you can probably turn to a YouTube video and get a source of authority for that. God could give you a divine recipe, but probably won't. Uh, YouTube will probably be a better source of authority for that. But the point that I would make is, how do you deal with bigger issues in life, like with regard to how you spend your money, who you should get married, when you think about your sexual identity, when you think about any construct within your life that matters most with regard to relationships, whatever the case is, where do you go for your authority? 
I think probably the most common way in which modern Americans would answer that is we would say, I just turn to myself. I turn to my authentic self. I search inward to decide what is the deepest, most authentic voice inside me telling me to do. That's my source of authority. And I've pushed back on this a lot, and I will continue to push back on it because I am deeply convinced it is a deeply flawed source of authority that will fail you. I've said this many, many times. As human beings, our preferences change. They mutate. They transform over time. Desires that I have today are different than desires that I had 15 years ago. They consistently change. What we need as human beings is a source of authority that never changes. That's not subject to mutation. That's not subject to transformation. And this is Jesus. And this is exactly how New Testament followers of Jesus would have identified Jesus, that he is the ultimate source of authority that one can always turn to and find life and wisdom and hope and healing. And this is how they would have viewed Jesus. He is their kurios. Next, we also see the title Christ. This is the Greek word Christos. simply means anointed one. Um, in fact, if in your Bibles, if you ever see, come across that word Christos or Christ, you can, you can literally just write beneath that or b- above it just the word king because that's what it means. That's what uh, an anointed one would have signified, someone that has been anointed with oil for a special, unique purpose in this particular context as king. But again, king also carries with it these overtones of authority, that if Jesus is king, What that simply means on its most fundamental level, if I declare that, if I verbalize, if I speak, Jesus, you are Christ, you are king, I'm in essence declaring that I'm not. I'm not king. I cannot be king. If I claim to be king, if I claim to be the sole source of authority, we have a conflict here. My source of authority, my claim for kingship against God's source of authority, and God's source of kingship. Question is, now there's a battle. Who will win? (laughs) Most people don't. But the point that I would make is this, is that these are the the ways in which they would have identified him. Um, Verse 4 and verse 27 also give us another title. It's the word son of God. Uh, This, no doubt, probably would have been deeply tethered to or anchored in the very beginning movement of the Bible where God creates Adam and Eve, and he describes Adam as being the son of God, the son of God. He's, he's this uniquely created creature that bears a resemblance of God in perfect humanity. We know the story of Adam. He falls short of that in many, many different ways, and all of Adam's sons also fall short of that, and daughters also fall short of that in many, many different ways. But what we see is that Jesus himself is identified as the son of God. Another one is a phrase in verse 27, the one who's coming into the world, which by the way, this is the passage that we read, the very first one, and this is Martha making this declaration. Um, In the Gospel of John, there are seven what's known as I am statements where Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection life. So seven times there are these declarations that Jesus makes. Um, John also bakes into the very story himself. Again, the story of John, the Gospel of John is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's literally a literary piece of genius. There's also seven affirmations or seven proclamations that Jesus is king. 
One of the seven happens to be the passage that we just read, where Martha comes on the scene, and she says, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one that has come into this world. So this phrase, the one that is coming into the world, probably tethers the actual coming of Jesus, or Jesus himself, to the ancient historic narrative, which, in other words, that very affirmation alone is essentially saying that Jesus, you're not just randomly here in this region of Galilee. You are part of the bigger storyline, plotline of Yahweh God. That's profound. Again, we live in a world today where everything's disposable. You buy something and you got to throw it away or replace it in the next two or three years. Everything has a shelf life. Think about a world where God designed it and nothing has a shelf life, where Jesus himself is deeply tethered to this long history. I would suggest to you more than anything in our world, we need this. We need this more than anything because part of living in a world where everything's disposable, at some point we find ourselves becoming filled with despair because everything we find that's good and awesome and beautiful at some point dies, rusts, or needs to be replaced. And Jesus comes along and says, no, he's part of this long history and will cast a future of a long history. Follow this one. That's the whole idea. And then lastly, here's another sort of a negative response that they had towards Jesus or an observation or opinion. They said, he who opened the eyes of the blind. Um, And the reference here, no doubt, is to Jesus has done miracles, but for whatever reason, he did not do a miracle for Lazarus, which this kind of ends on a little bit of a question mark, uh, questioning Jesus's either love or power or kindness or ability. Um, And this, either his powers, Jesus as a healer, they're either intermittent or they're discriminant. If they're intermittent, that means you can't really trust in them. If they're discriminant, you can't really trust them because he's dubious intentions. Sometimes he'll cast the healing over here and sometimes they'll just, you know, who knows, he's got dubious intentions to watch you suffer and die over there. And this is often as what a line of question can lead to. But in this particular context, we see that there's a contrast between those that love Jesus and are committed to him and are making these announcements and pronouncements and declarations. He's king, he's Lord, he's good. And then there's others that are like, well, could not this guy who healed the blind also heal Lazarus? What's going on with this Jesus? So with that being said, I want to just uh, jump ahead in the very next one before I get to that. I want to just pause and reflect upon this fact that everybody seems to have an opinion about Jesus. That seems big, obvious, on the eye chart. Wherever Jesus goes, whatever he's doing, whatever he's saying, it's always crafting some form of opinion. Uh, From the Bible, we see that the minority opinion, there's no doubt it was a minority opinion. I mean, you have a lot of characters in the Bible, and probably the majority of those characters are, for the most part, going to be devoted to Jesus. But in the broader culture and context, the, the minority opinion of Jesus was that he was prophet, Messiah, king. But the majority opinion of Jesus, rep, uh, represented by the establishment, they saw Jesus as a threat, and they wanted to kill him. That's exactly why they put Jesus to death, because Jesus stood as a threat religiously and politically. He threatened the political and religious order. Uh, Jesus stands as someone that threatens to undermine and reduce and to offset the power's And you know what it's like. Anytime if you have power and that power gets threatened, uh, we immediately bristle, and there's some sort of reaction to that. And this is exactly what happened with Jesus. Um, We see that throughout history, people had uh, diverse opinions about Jesus. And within our modern world in which we live in, this is interesting, 52%, as according to a recent poll, 50% 
52%, sorry, of Americans believe that Jesus was a great human teacher, but had committed sins just like others, and that he was nothing more. He was just a great human teacher, 52%. Um, this has morphed and changed over time, and I would say probably as a result of postmodernism or postmodern thought, the way of being able to craft my own version of how I think Jesus should be, but also at the same time, a deep distrust towards institutions, which I don't cast any blame on anybody that has any question, questionable uh, concern or skepticism or cynicism against any form of institution. Institutions oftentimes are fallible and broken and create more pain than good. Oftentimes they can. But the point that I would make is that as a result of that, we see the majority uh, of people living in this country do not see Jesus as he claims to have been truly seen or as others in the popular opinion had seen him. Um, at the very source of this, it might be important just to note that a Christian, like if you were to ask yourself the question, like what is a Christian? The most simplest way I can just simply define it is a, a Christian is one who sees Jesus as their ultimate source of authority, kingship, and instruction, and life and love. That's what a Christian is. Ultimately, we, we turn to Jesus. That's what Christians have always been throughout the Bible. That's what they've always been throughout history. That's what they continue to be, even though there may be elements of push back or where, again, like I said, we want to create sort of a bespoken type of a Jesus where we take certain elements of Jesus that we like and certain other elements of Jesus we don't really like. Again, depending upon oftentimes our own political viewpoints, we have certain things that kind of complement our way and our sensibilities and other things that kind of offend our sensibilities. But a Christian is one that sees Jesus for who he is and says, I will align my objections and my sensibilities around his kingship because he alone is the ultimate source of authority and king. And that's hard because that requires me to say no to some things. It requires me to be reprogrammed in my thinking by virtue of that. We would call that an act of discipleship where I'm saying no to certain things. But it's not totally foreign. I think the closest example of this comes in our modern context of marriage. When, when a male meets a female and they fall in love and they marry, they will make adjustments to each other. That's just what happens because that's what love does. Love forces you, not out of coercion or suppression or oppression, but love forces us to look at the landscape and say, I will do anything to be on this person's side or to be within their presence. And I will change and I will shape my objections and my ideas and my desires and my longings so that they are ultimately complementary to theirs. And that's what a Christian is at its very source. It's hard. It's tough. Jesus says, following me sometimes will feel like a death. But unless you die and take up your cross, you're, you're not engaged in the real work of discipleship. So with that being said, we see first and foremost the observations and opinions. I want to move on to the last one. And I'm done. Uh, I'm going to take a look at the emotions and the expressions of Jesus because this is where it gets really beautiful. In verse 33, I just want to read this little segment. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, and the Jews who had come out also there with her. Remember, they were following her because they had no idea where she was going. Uh, these would have been probably family members, neighbors, probably some of the professional like uh, mourning team that we talked about last week, um, and whoever. They were out there to show support to Mary. They're also weeping. Mary's weeping. So again, is this a happy scenario or a really sad, tragic scenario? 
Very, very sad, tragic scenario, right? So here's Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Listen to what it says. And then he said to them, where have you laid him? And they said to him, come, Lord, see. And then the smallest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, which is actually three words in the original. And really also, it might be notable to say that when John originally penned this, he did not put chapter and verses in there. This came a little bit later. But the point of the matter is the smallest verse, smallest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And what this tells us immediately is about the emotional state of Jesus. Emotions are interesting because emotions have had been and have or are continued to be studied broadly and widely by many forms of disciplines, from biology to psychology to neuroscience, psychiatry, anthropology, sociology. You know who else also studies emotions? Business managers, advertisers, and communications experts. Because they know if we can grasp a hold of people's emotions, we can sell them a product, we can play upon their emotions, their vulnerable state, we can manipulate those emotions, we can spend money to somehow shape those emotions, because emotions literally are impacting uh, for us as human beings. It's really powerful when you think about this. Um, I was thinking about sort of a physiology of emotions. There's a doctor by the name of Dr. Candace Perch. She was the chief of brain biochemistry of the National Institute of Health. She was one of the most notable contributors to emotional intelligence. She said this, our emotions are chemistry and physics, or a mix of chemistry and physics. You have receptors on every cell in your body. They actually are mini electrical pumps. It's kind of fascinating. When the receptor is activated by a matching molecule of emotion, molecule of emotion, the receptor passes the charge into the cell, changing the cell's electrical frequency as well as its chemistry. As our feelings change, this mixture of peptides travels throughout the body and brain, and they're literally changing the chemistry of every cell in your body. And in one of her books, she actually describes how this change in a human body from this emotional charge change actually gets picked up by other people. She kind of uses the language of, like, vibrations. But have you ever been around someone that's really, really sad? You pick that up? It's literally what she's saying. Something physiological is happening in that host body and it's passing on to those that are present. Why I say that? You're God, gone through the very same thing. This is exactly what's happening to Jesus. Something physiological, something emotional is happening to Jesus in this scene. I think it's noteworthy. You just kind of pause, reflect, and think about what's happening. Aristotle, the great philosopher, would say something like this. Emotions are all those feelings that so change humans so as to affect their judgments and that are also attained, att attended by pain and or pleasure, such as anger, pity, fear, etc. But the phrase that I want to focus on is that he uses a pain and pleasure. Emotions have the impact to cause pain or pleasure. I don't know how you think about God, but I think our default mode is oftentimes thinking about God as being indifferent to our pain and our hardship. But this story tells us an entirely different revelation of this God and of his posture towards you. And I'll go through three quick ways in which John uses very quickly uh, to describe Jesus' emotional state. Number one, verse 33, and then verse 38. We won't get to that today, but specifically verse 33, we're told that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, deeply moved in his spirit. Um, the word that's actually used here, one of the root words, literally means to make a sound or a snort. It actually used oftentimes to describe a horse, that when it's agitated, it will... <clears throat> You know what I'm saying? There you go. Don't quote me on that. But make some sort of a sound, right? Um, but 
imagine, imagine it's, it's, it's different than, it's more of an exhale, but an exhale that is agitated and aggravated, like, like an angry horse that just kind of makes that particular snort or that sound. This is the analogy, or this is the word that John uses to describe Jesus in this particular moment. There's something happening in Jesus' spirit that's causing him to feel some form of deep emotion. So it's not just entirely sorrowful. This um, also is a similar phrase that gets used at Mary's anointing. When some look at Mary breaking this costly oil, that they're just like, are you kidding me? This is what's happening? They're breaking costly oil to give to Jesus? A sense of frustration. But Jesus isn't angry at the people for being sad. This is important. He's not angry at the people for being sad. What's he anger, ang- angered by? Again, the text isn't, is not explicit in this, but if, my best guess would be that his anger is poised towards sin and ultimately death that has wrecked havoc upon his people. That, to me, seems to be the most suitable answer to describe what What's causing the source of this deep-seated emotion that Jesus has? He's frustrated. And I think of it as like if, um, if an artist shows up on scene to view their piece of art, and then they watch the fact that this whole thing has been vandalized or torn down or destroyed or wrecked or ruined, or someone puts a nice little you know, mustache upon this piece of art, that sense of like, are you kidding? This is what's happening. Jesus sees this. Then second phrase to describe Jesus' emotional state is he's greatly troubled. Greatly troubled. Verse 33, the particular word that's used there is the word that oftentimes gets translated as agitated or disturbed. It's the word that's actually used to describe when Herod found out that uh, Jesus is is born. He's deeply disturbed because obviously he feels a sense of frustration. Um, It's the word that describes when Jesus' disciples uh, watch him walking on water. They're agitated. Their soul is finding a deep sense of unrest. Have you ever been in a state where your soul is just disturbed, unrested? This is where Jesus is. And then lastly, we see this little phrase, Jesus wept, Jesus wept. Um, This exact same word that gets used here is a word that was common to just describe this guttural sense of sorrow. And this is what Jesus is feeling in this moment. So a quick little summary to this point. We see that Jesus arrived a few days after the death of his good friend Lazarus. We see that Lazarus' sisters are mourning as their friends, as are their friends and neighbors. And then lastly, we see that Jesus came with this intention of raising Lazarus from the dead. So again, I want to kind of put this together. Jesus knew exactly what he was about to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows this. And then even in the midst of this, this very fact gives this verse, an incredible context that blows our minds because Christ is here to restore this dead man, but even still weeps. So I think it's a worthy question to even ask. Is this authentic or performance? I think we've, maybe if you're cynical like me, you see people weeping on things like social media. I don't buy it. I mean, some people I might buy because it's like deeply, it seems convincing. But is Jesus just a performance artist? Is he just weeping because it's like, oh, it seems like the right thing to do? Or is he deeply feeling the sense of pain? I think the latter is true. Jesus feels this, and he cries, this deep sense. This would be fascinating 
to anybody in the first century. Why? Because 2,000 years have been removed from us and Jesus' initial interactions with people. And what I mean by that is we tend to take Jesus' humanity for granted. We tend to just think that, of course, all gods feel compassion and empathy towards suffering. And the answer to that is absolutely not. Like, that's never happened in history. This, this is absolutely revolutionary, what Jesus is portraying here. This never has shown up on human stage ever until this moment. Ancient pagan deities were either emotionless or unconcerned with human suffering. They saw human beings as either toys, tools, or slaves. The idea of a God who is sympathetic to human suffering was completely foreign. It just had no categories for it. It's only Judaism that depicts Yahweh God as truly emotional and invested in the lives of others. And we see hints of this throughout the Old Testament where God's portrayed as a as a husband, and he's married to an unfaithful spouse. The book of Hosea exemplifies this in the most pronounced way, where God is dealing with an emotional state. Should I keep my spouse? Should I divorce my spouse? She's been horribly unfaithful to me. I've been nothing but faithful. I've been nothing but good. I've been nothing but showering kindness and goodness upon her. But over and over and over again, my spouse, my wife, has been unfaithful and cheating behind my back. And throughout the story of Hosea, you see these moments where, where, where it's like inner dialogue. I could divorce her. I have the right to divorce her. But I love her. I don't want to divorce her. Because I would rather suffer in the context of being in relationship with her than to be departed from her, knowing that I could. And then this, but this, the story of Hosea raises the question, how can God remain just and enact justice, but injustice, but at the same time continue in his commitment to love? And it's not until we get to Jesus that we see this shockingly beautiful extent of his investment to step into human suffering. We begin to see this play out in Jesus. And to the degree that you see this, this will change you. It will change your posture towards this God who's wildly for you. So we ask these questions so oftentimes. When bad things happen, does God even care? When suffering takes place in my life, does God even care about me? Does he even see me? We can go through circumstances or prolong seasons of longing, and then those longings never see any substance or fulfillment. It might be like a longing for a child and you have never had a child or a longing for a spouse and you've never had a spouse or a longing for a child to return to a relationship with you and that child has not, after a decade, never returned to you. And that's radically painful. And so often it becomes even more poignant. Does God even care? This statement of Jesus, about Jesus, says, saying that he wept proves to us very clearly that God actually does care. He doesn't always give us answers as to why he does not give us what we are asking for or wanting or begging or pleading. He reserves, for whatever reason, that bit of information. But nonetheless, that's where we are invited to trust him as one that has our good in mind, no matter what. 
So I'm going to end on this. Truth number one, I'll go through this really quickly. Number, truth number one that I think we're invited in this story to really consider. Number one, God has an unseen purpose even in our hardest moments. God has an unseen purposes even in our, our hardest moments. Romans 8, chapter 28 says this, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to purposes. It's really important just to note the remainder of this, the, this entirety of this passage. Uh, oftentimes I hear this misquoted. Hey, it's okay, don't worry about life. It's all gonna work together for good. But I want, I want to be really clear on this. This is a covenantal promise. This is made to those that are in covenant with God. Did you pick it up? For those that love God. You might be someone that's like, I don't really love God. He's not my Lord. He's not my source of authority. I'm my source of authority. But I'm still going to try to choose to believe that all things work together for good. I, I can't grant you that promise. Like I, like, I don't have the authority, first of all, number one. I'm just trying to parrot what Scripture seems to teach, that really at the end of the day, this promise seems to be given to those that are in covenantal relationship with Yahweh God. And he says, look, I promise you, all things in your life, as you're called according to my purposes, and as you step into love, it will work out together for good. Now, it's hard sometimes because we don't always see any form of light at the end of the tunnel at all. And so we're left kind of like with the question of like, is there any light at the end of this tunnel? I don't know. It doesn't feel like it. I don't see it. Especially through prolonged seasons of pain and sorrow and hardship. But people of faith have always just continued pressing in, moving onward, moving upward, following this God, knowing that somehow, some way, his promises will prove true. And then truth number two is God has genuine understanding and empathy for our pain. No matter what type of circumstances we're going through, we know for sure that he does truly not only see, but cares. And this is what Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, let us draw near to him and receive mercy and find grace in our help and our time of need. And this is, again, another one of those invitations that, yes, your life may be filled with pain and hardship and deeply in need of grace and mercy. Turn to this God who feels your pain, who knows what you're going through. And as I close, I'm going to have Dan come on up, and we're just going to close in a final song. As they're making their way up right now, I want to read uh, just a real quick quote. It's not going to be up on the screen. It's from C.S. Lewis. Um, It's a passage that he had written years ago, and he said this, God, who is love, is also the one who seeks our good. So I'm going to take each one of these and just I want you to think about them. God, who is love, is also the one who seeks our good. God is love. He also seeks your good. You might not be convinced of that. I'm going to say it again. God, who is love, also seeks your good. Then he goes on to say, ergo, suffering. Uh, uh, this is the, uh, the minor chord playing. Suffering, if such there be, is either a part of that good or a means to that good. And read that again. Suffering, if there be any, is either part of that good or a means to that good. If God is love and he seeks your good, then whatever type of suffering we may be going through right now or encountering is either part of that good or a path to that good. And for us, the invitation is pretty clear and plain we can either enter in with the host of millions upon millions and multitudes upon multitudes that have found Jesus faithful, even though they may have even lost their life. And they've continued to press in word and upward 
and they found him faithful as they saw his face one day when he wipes away every tear from their eye. Or we can keep our arms folded, keep God at arm's length, and say, I will continue to trust my own inner voice. Thank you. But I promise you, that path has a very, very short shelf life. It may provide you some degree of immediate stability and hope, but in the long run will ultimately fail you. My hope would be that all of us here today, as we press into Jesus, would become a community that truly presses in to the heart of this God who's not only for us, feels for us with empathy and sympathy, but also has a pathway and a plan to make this world that's horribly broken right again by eradicating sin and death. That's the hope that we have. I want to invite us all to stand, and let's just sing this last song, and we will lift up our voices, and I think it's just a great way of reaffirming um, our commitment and our love, our devotion to this God who is in love and devoted to us. Thank you.